Good morning, my name's David, and we'll now have our Bible reading. And the passage this morning is from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2, and verses 1 to 10. You can find this in the Church Bibles on page 484. Page 484, Nehemiah chapter 2, and verses 1 to 10. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I, Nehemiah, took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favour in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah, where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple, and for the city wall, and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Thank you very much, David, for uh, giving us that reading from the Bible. My name's John uh, Risbridger. For those of you who uh, are new here, I'm one of the ministers. And again, fantastic to see you. And I kind of want to say every week, standing at the front here, hearing everybody here praising God does me such a lot of good. So thank you, everybody, for that. I hope it does you some, some good as well. So here's a question just to get you, uh, get you thinking um, about yourself, one of those self-awareness questions. Would you describe yourself as a kind of ponderous planning type or an impulsive action type? I wonder which uh, is, is you. So just to give you an illustration, if you're thinking of a holiday... Are you the kind of person who researches every option and plans out every day in detail? Or are you the kind of person who just thinks, do you know, I fancy going to France, let's book it and then we'll sort out what we'll do when we get there. 
Do you know? I wonder which you are. It wouldn't take you very long in our household to figure which one of those I am. Neither would it take you very long to realize that Alison is the exact opposite. Anyway, what about Nehemiah? to bring this to uh, where we're going this morning. Which is he? You know, I think when you read through Nehemiah, I kind of come to the conclusion that he was, on the whole, naturally, more the kind of ponderous planning type. Remember last week when he heard about the city walls in Jerusalem and the state everything was in? And he spent some days fasting and mourning and praying before the God of heaven. That's quite a long time, isn't it, to reflect. And, uh, and then when we get into the passage today, it's, it's pretty clear that he is prepared for that negotiation with the king when it suddenly kind of opens up to him. He knows exactly what he's going to be asking for. And then a little bit later in the passage, we've not got to it yet, but a bit later in the passage, we find him making this undercover visit to Jerusalem to go around all the, all the walls and see exactly what's going on so that before he talks to any about, anybody about it, he's got it all clear in his head. His plan is made. I think he's the preparing planner, maybe slightly ponderous type. But I guess ponderous planners have to make sure they don't ponder and plan forever. There has to come that moment when they step out and act and get started. And that's what's happening here in Nehemiah chapter 2. In fact, four months have passed since that moment when first he heard about the state of the walls in Jerusalem. Four months have passed since then. And uh, it's, it's taking time for Nehemiah to decide and reflect uh, on exactly what to do. But now we get to chapter 2 and it's time for him to act. He's going to take two key steps. First of all, he's going to make his pitch to Artaxerxes, the, uh, the Persian king. And then he's going to make his pitch to the Jewish leaders back in Jerusalem. The first two big steps in his journey. So let's just look at those briefly and then see what they might have to say to us. First of all, he makes his pitch to the king. Remember, we saw this at the end of last week, that Nehemiah is the king's cupbearer, a very, very close, intimate servant of the most powerful man in the world at the time. And one day as Nehemiah gives him his wine, somehow it's as if the king sees into his soul and sees his sadness. If you read it in the original language, it's not quite so clear exactly how that happened. But somehow King Artaxerxes sees his cupbearer and knows that something isn't right. Verse 2, the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Now, what's he going to do? Because remember, Artaxerxes was Nehemiah's king and boss. He wasn't his therapist. Just important to realize. So seeming sad in his presence was not necessarily very smart. This could easily go badly wrong, which is why at the end of verse 2, we read Nehemiah was very much afraid. But he spots the open door nonetheless and swallows his fears and seizes the day. Verse 2 and 3, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad 
when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. That took some courage. That took some determination to make that step. But as soon as he's made it, Nehemiah sees that God is in this encounter and the doors just keep opening as he asks for one thing after another. So it's not just that his request to go and rebuild the walls gets granted. He also asks for letters to, to show that the king is backing him, that he can uh, take to the local governors so they don't get in his way. And then he also has the cheek to ask for uh, a letter to the, the keeper of the royal park, where all the trees and the wood would be kept, to make sure he's got plenty of wood, not just for the gates and the walls, but even for his residence as well. He was asking a lot, wasn't he? End of verse, well, beginning of verse 8, sorry, end of verse 8, because the gracious hand of my God was on me, The king granted my requests. In fact, end of verse 9, the king also sent army officers and cavalry with me as well. This was some result when Nehemiah stepped out and began his journey. But it's only the first step. We get to the second half of the chapter that we didn't have time to read this morning. And the second step is there when Nehemiah makes his pitch to Jerusalem and its leaders. Because if you think about it, Nehemiah and his project to rebuild Jerusalem and especially its walls and gates, it isn't going to get anywhere unless the local community there in Jerusalem decide that it's a good idea as well. And they've been back from their exile for some time. And although they kind of built the temple for quite a while now, frankly, what have they been doing? Not very much. So this could go wrong again. So off Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem. And he begins, as I mentioned already, with his nighttime visit to the walls. He wanted unhurried, unpressured time to really see what was going on before he opened his mouth to anybody about it. He's got his facts straight. And only then is he ready to make that second key move and lay it on the line with the leaders in Jerusalem. Verse 17, I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. And so they began this good work. Fantastic. The second step taken, the pitch to the leaders in Jerusalem, they're on board and the work can begin. God is in this, clearly. But even so, as we've seen several times already, and we'll see much more clearly in the coming weeks, it isn't going to be plain sailing, even though God is in it. Verse 19, when Sambalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked us and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they asked? Are you rebelling against the king? Nehemiah has to deal with their opposition very firmly. Verse 20, I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic rights to it. Wow, firm leadership. And so the journey is underway. And you know, I, I don't know how you're feeling at the moment. It, it feels to me like we're kind of trying to crank life back into action after a long time when it hasn't felt very normal. It feels a bit rusty and difficult and hard work, doesn't it? 
Okay, okay, about three people agree. Okay, there's a few more nods. I think that's how it feels for us. And, and so for me, actually, this is a great chapter to be reading right today. It's a great chapter to, to just kind of remind us that we can take steps forwards in our lives, in our work, in our church. And if the good hand of God is on us, we can prosper again. We just sang it, didn't we? Your plans are still to prosper. You've not forgotten us. You're with us in the fire and the flood. This is a great chapter for us to read. The journey begins. I think it's also probably quite a good chapter to read for those of us who by temperament might be inclined to plan and to overthink and to ponder, perhaps sometimes a little too long. It's an encouragement and perhaps a gentle push that the time must come when we step out and get the journey underway. What can we learn then from the moment when Nehemiah, the ponderous planner, took his courage in his hands and stepped out and let the journey begin? Well, I've got just a few, well, in fact, there are six takeaway points. They're brief though, so don't worry. I'll run through them. The first is very brief, which is really to begin at the end because we've already covered this and we'll come back to it in a few weeks. It's just the reminder that God's work is contested. Remember, Sambalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonites, and Geshem the Arab, who didn't like this at all. We'll see much more of this, but let's just notice right from the beginning, from the moment the journey begins, in each of these first two steps, God's work is contested. We need to take that on board. But second, and I'll open this up a little bit more, God values practical wisdom and know-how. I think that's clear from this chapter. It's very obvious when you read what David read to us a few moments ago, that Nehemiah wasn't just rocking up in the Persian court thinking, oh, I might have a word with the king sometime. No, he had thought about this. He had prayed about this. He was well prepared. He knew exactly what he needed to say and what he needed to ask in order to get the job done. He asked for time. He asked for support. He asked for security. He even asked for wood for the building project. I think it's quite impressive that the king's butler had such a great grasp of project management. But remember also that nighttime tour of the city in verses 12 to 15, where Nehemiah wants the space uncluttered to get the facts, and so goes under the cover of darkness, so that before he speaks to anyone, he knows what he's got to say. And I think it's this balance of very thoughtful planning and yet courageous action that makes Nehemiah's leadership so impressive. Aren't you enjoying the uh, extra bit of a compliment? I like that. Maybe all my sermons would improve a bit if we had a bit of um, um, a compliment from outside. Wonderful. Anyway, um, but, but that, that balance, that balance, thoughtful planning, courageous action, that's what's so I impressive. And, you know, I think it's something we can take away from here, not just for our kind of churchly bits of life, it's actually very relevant for all of life, isn't it? That actually God's wisdom is for us to think carefully and plan things out and talk to people who will help us to do that well. But God also challenges not for us to stay in that place of ponderous planning forever, but the ones who thought it through to have the courage to step up and take the action. 
and actually in our working lives, in our relationships, in our holiday planning even, and of course, in our life in the church. That principle is so important and we can learn from it. So I want to say just very practically, know yourself. It's been a big, tough, painful journey for me in the last few years to get to know myself better. So if you're the reflective, pondering, planning type, that's fine. But don't just get trapped by that, but learn alongside it to grow in action and decision-making. And then don't get too angry with the people that sometimes goad you a bit to do that. But if you're the action-oriented risk-taker, that's great as well. But don't just get tripped up by that. Instead, surround yourself with people who will ask you those irritating questions that make you think and have the humility to listen and take their wisdom on board. Know yourself. God values practical wisdom. Number three, God works through people. Now, there's a sensitive situation when Nehemiah goes back to Jerusalem. There have been several Jewish exiles who came back well before him. They've been there now for quite a long time. What have they been doing of late? And how are they going to feel when this chap from the Persian court comes telling them he's got the answers to what they're to do next? Why not just send him packing back to Persia and say, do you know, we're happy enough without our walls, thank you very much. We really don't want to be disturbed. This could go wrong. And it's no use just having great ideas and great projects. If you can't take people with you and treat them properly, then you're not a leader even if you think you are, because you're only a leader if people are following. And that's why Nehemiah took the time to establish the facts, present the case, give the reasons, and then invite them humbly to get on board. And we see that principle all the way through the Bible. Look into the New Testament. Look at Jesus and his three, his 12, his 72, his crowd of followers and the time he invested in them. Look at Paul and, and his traveling companions and the elders that he equipped and set up and released and trained and developed. God grows his kingdom through people. And good leadership will involve always taking time to try and treat people well so that you can take them with you. Number four, God provides for his work. So interesting, isn't it? The courage Nehemiah had as he faces the most powerful man in the world, asking for some time off to go and do a project in Jerusalem. And when he gets permission, he doesn't stop there, as we've already seen. He goes so much further, asking for those letters for, from the local, to the local governors to, to give him kind of cover. And, and then the letters to the keeper of the royal park in order to give him resources and, and, uh, and, and timber for the task. And God gave it to him. In fact, God gave him even more than he asked, didn't he? Do you remember at the end of verse 9 when Artaxerxes doesn't just give him letters and a bit of wood, he also gives him cavalry and horses to go with him. God provides. This doesn't mean that God will underwrite any harebrained scheme we fancy having a go at. But if we take a risk for something on the heart of God that he has truly called us to, he does provide. 
And there are many of us around this room who've seen that principle worked and that worked out in our lives time and again. But I want you just to notice the spiritual dynamics that are going on as Nehemiah looks for God's provision. There he is standing before King Artaxerxes, the most powerful man in the world at the time. And what's he doing? Verse 4, the king said to him, what is you want? What is it you want? And Nehemiah isn't overawed by the most powerful man in the world. Instead, as he stands in the royal court, ready to take the greatest risk of his life, he prays to the God of heaven. End of verse 4. And then right at the end of, of, of it, verse, uh, second half of verse 8, when he's got everything he asks, how does he look back on it? He says, because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. I guess by temperament, some of us are naturally people of prayer, while others are people of action. But whatever his temperament, Nehemiah knew only too well that it would only cut it if he did both, prayer and action. It was action soaked in prayer and worked out in deep, conscious dependence on God that made the impact. So that he looked back not saying, aren't I smart, but that the good hand of my God was upon me. And then number five, God positions us. It's really how the chapter begins King Artaxerxes, as we've seen, was the most powerful man in the world at the time. Nehemiah was a mere Jewish exile, powerless, and yet positioned to pour the wine into the king's cup, his trusted confidant. God's person positioned to have the ear of the king for the sake of God's kingdom. Just as he has positioned you, And as Paul says in Ephesians 2, has prepared works of service in advance for you to do. Whether within your family and the responsibilities of home. Whether among your neighbors, the place where you live. Whether in your hall or your flat or your corridor or your course if you're a student here. Whether in your workplace or in your community. God has positioned you. And where he's positioned you, he wants to use you. Each day with the people we meet and the situations we're in, we need to be asking, what is God doing here? And what will it mean for me to be a part of what God is doing? He he positions us and he wants to use us there. Just uh, this last week, a dear friend of mine who's a, a Muslim asked me, who'd asked me a little while ago for a book about faith. And we finally caught up over coffee up in Marlins. And it was just one of those conversations where you knew God was in this. And after some pancakes and coffee and nice things, the conversation just opened up. And we had our best and most honest chat yet about Jesus. God positions us. And where he puts us, he wants to use us. And then finally, number six, God calls us to take risks. Do you remember Nehemiah's fear as he stood before Artaxerxes? You see, an intimate servant of the most powerful king in the world who steps out of line would have a very short life expectancy. But God had called Nehemiah to take this huge risk. 
And though maybe he wasn't really a natural risk taker, he nonetheless steps up to it with astonishing courage and boldness, praying to the God of heaven and answering the king. He pondered, he planned, he prayed. But when the moment came, he was ready to step out and act decisively. Now, I know we're not all natural risk takers, but we are all sometimes called to take risks. In the life of faith, we can't have everything sewn up and safe. Sometimes we have to step out and act even when we don't feel comfortable. God calls us to take risks. Nehemiah was God's person in God's place at God's time. He may have been a ponderous planner, but when he understood the need and saw the door open, he became a man of action who stepped up to seize the day. So where has God positioned and placed you? And what is he doing there? And how is he inviting you to participate in what he's doing? It may be that God has been probing away in your heart for a long time about a change of job or a change of direction or even a call to move to a completely different culture and part of the world in order to take the good news of Jesus there. And, and it's been kind of going on in the back of your head, but you want to stick your head in the sand because it's too awkward and uncomfortable and it will be too much of a risk. But perhaps, but perhaps it is time to make the first move to take the step. Or in the rebuilds of post-lockdown church, maybe God has been slowly challenging you to get involved, maybe to join the church as a member, maybe to get baptized and to identify with the church, maybe to step to heal a broken relationship or to join a team or to grow a vision for church that isn't just Sunday, but serving and reaching the city right through the week, which is the vision that God, I believe, has given us. And God is calling you to make the move and get off the benches and onto the pitch. And it feels like a risk and something in you doesn't want to. But maybe this week he wants you to take the first step, to send that email, to send that text, to get stuck in. Or what about those people that you've been praying about for Alpha? We're planning and believing for a significant Alpha this, uh, this term. Uh, we've got the Buses with banners, we're going to have banners on the outside, well, things on the outside of the building soon that are going to make it clear to everybody. We're actually running it in the building here, so we've got much more room than we have when we're at home because we want God to do something big among us. What about those people that you wrote on the card a couple of weeks ago and you're praying for them? What about the risk taking a step of asking them? Starts on the 12th of October. It's not too long before that day. Perhaps it's time to stop putting it off and to make the move, to have the coffee and the conversation and just say, hey, would you come? I'm going to. Whether it's your work, your life situation, your church involvement, Alpha, wherever God is probing you, will you take the risk Will you seize the day and, like Nehemiah, let the journey begin? We're going to watch a video now.